Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How has post-traumatic stress disorder evolved over time throughout history based on those who serve, the types of weapons used, and the types of conflicts that have been fought? Is it even appropriate to use the term disorder when we talk about PTSD? Is it better to talk about post-traumatic stress? And is there a difference between PTS and moral injury? It's hard to define these terms, and it's hard to define the characteristics that are displayed depending on the conflict that is fought. On today's episode of the Warfare Podcast, I've invited Heather Pace Venable on. Now, Heather is Associate Professor at the Air Command and Staff College of the US Air Force at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, the United States. She works with both serving and former military personnel every single day. Heather takes us through this long history of what she calls post-traumatic stress. She takes us back through to the ancient Greeks. She helps us grapple and toil with this difficult topic and these difficult terms. And she takes us through into modern warfare, where we ask whether or not, as wars get ever more distant, ever more remote in terms of Western warfare, US warfare at least, and they're defined by robotics, remotely piloted vehicles, drones, will we see PTS as a feature in future conflict? I know you're going to find this one truly fascinating. So here is Heather Pace Venable on the history of post-traumatic stress. Hi Heather, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. Thank you, I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this important topic, post-traumatic stress disorder, regularly referred to as PTSD. In fact, according to the US Department of Veterans Affairs, as many as 15.7% of veterans who had been deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq since 2001 and 2003, respectively, now suffer with PTSD, and that is US veterans. In fact, if I look back, many of my friends who served in Afghanistan suffered greatly, and these issues have been brought back most recently to the front of their minds with the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan and the emergence of the war in 
in Ukraine. I'm sure we're going to deal with many of these issues during our discussion today. But before we get into all of this and into this history of PTSD as well, I wanted to address a point that you and I had spoken about before. And this is the use of the term disorder associated with post-traumatic stress. You work every day with serving and former active duty military personnel in the US Air Force. Do you think that they... Do you think that you think that disorder is the right term? The question in true staff college fashion is it depends. I think that the use of the word disorder was important at the time after the Vietnam War when many veterans developed uh, what may have been PTS or may have been moral trauma after that war. And there was a large movement of many disparate parties to come together and get post-traumatic stress disorder recognized. It was put into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1980, and this was both a compromise and a victory for Vietnam veterans. On the one hand, this meant that they could receive treatment and benefits that would help them from, to recover because now it was legitimized. But on the other hand, it was seen problematically in some ways for veterans for a number of reasons, because this goes to a longstanding debate within the field of the history of combat, if of whether veterans are more victims of warfare or victors over warfare. I forgot to give my standard disclaimer, everything I say does not represent the Department of Defense or the U.S. Air Force, which is my employer. Absolutely, we will not hold them to account for what you say. <laughs> it's interesting, this idea of a moral aspect as opposed to a, a medical disorder. Disorder, I suppose, has this connotation that it is a, a brain deficiency in some sort of way, where when we talk about morality, it's more of a an, an emotional response. But I suppose the disorder element is so incredibly important because it does line up those vital funds from the Department of Veterans Affairs to make sure that people are supported, whether or not it is kind of this issue in the brain, a, a chemical issue, you could say, or whether it comes from this more moral formatting of the challenges faced by those who have faced severe trauma within combat. Is that the fair way to distinguish this, or am I going on the, on the kind of the wrong track here? No, I think that you're right that from a psychological point of view, in terms of helping veterans, it's helpful that it was added into the psychologist's handbook to call it a disorder. But personally, whenever I talk about it in class, I always refer to it as PTS because I understand why the word disorder sets off some negative reactions and doesn't help people that may uh, need help unpacking a lot of their experience to really begin wrestling with what they've been a part of. Okay, well, we're going to take your lead. We're going to refer to it as PTS as well, post-traumatic stress. I think that makes sense. So, Heather, before we get into this history much further, much deeper, could you just take a little bit of time to give us a clear definition of the difference between this term you used, moral injury, and then what we're discussing today, which is post-traumatic stress, PTS? Well, there's some interesting scholarship that really breaks apart these terms in ways that I think offers a useful starting point. A person may have PTS. 
They may have moral injury or they may have both. And it really depends on the situation and the varieties of experience of combat. And in the case of PTS, the trigger is going to be the threat of death or serious injury, either to yourself or to someone else. And moral injury is different in that these are acts that violate one's moral norms. And in this case, one may either be the victim and feel like leadership has lied to them or let them down in some way, or they may be the perpetrator of the act that violates one's moral norms themselves. And I think that where this really gets interesting and we can use to look at the experiences of the global war on terror veterans is in the different types of responses. And so post-traumatic stress in many ways is characterized by feelings of fear, horror, and helplessness, which come from the feeling that one has lost a sense of safety, where the response to moral injury is very, very different. It is more about guilt, shame, and anger. And in this case, it is representing a sense that one has lost trust in their leadership or lost trust in their own ability to follow their moral compass. And so this may not be accompanied by the symptoms, that category of four different types of symptoms that lead into post-traumatic stress, but one can also understand how this would be a huge burden to have to carry with you after your combat service when so many people signed up because they wanted to serve and they wanted to make the world a better place. And so what are those four characteristics of PTS you mentioned there, Heather? Well, there are a bunch of things that are really hard to, you know, diagnose just for the average layperson. But one category that needs to occur is recurring symptoms, such as flashbacks or nightmares, which is common among many, many veterans. The other is the next symptom or category is that this needs to be really affecting the choices you make in daily life. For example, you might not want to go to a fireworks 4th of July celebration, something like that, because you know that you will perhaps overreact. And which leads into the next is that to become post-traumatic stress, it needs to affect your emotions and your reactions. And so one of those key ones is a tendency to be hypersensitive to noise and then react again because you feel like your sense of safety has been lost. And then finally, something it needs to affect your mindset, which, as I've said, often plays into it's going to manifest itself enough that it will start hurting your performance at work or start ruining relationships. And so that's emotional distancing, loss of interest in things that you've formerly been engaged in, things like that. I remember conducting interviews with uh, force protection officers who had served in Operation Inherent Resolve during the recent war against ISIS. And they were saying to me that they were struggling a lot since they'd got back because ISIS had used small quadricopter drones in their hundreds against Allied forces. And since I'd come back to the United States and drones were kind of ubiquitous in the sky and everywhere, especially, like you say, on 4th of July when the fireworks are going up, the drones go up as people want to take pictures of the drones and video record in the sky. And they were telling me, and it's not just one person, numerous people telling me that this gave those flashbacks that you were talking about as well. So I, I see this documented even today and in everyday life. It's interesting because, you know, as you do define those key terms there, we've got to, I suppose, mention the fact that they're very clear 
almost set characteristics. It's almost like a textbook medical definition. And we know why that happens. And it's because you have to have a kind of a tick box of symptoms and characteristics that the Department of Veterans Affairs can then diagnose and offer support to. But by being so specific and rigid, do we find that it's also exclusionary to people who perhaps suffer broader symptoms as well? Yes, and I think that during the global war on terror, one of the huge advancements was that in our way of thinking, it became accepted to have post-traumatic stress. But I think that also had a problematic consequence unintentionally, where now we just apply the PTS stamp to everything where that it might not be PTS, it might just be a normal sort of reaction to war or moral injury or something else. You see, this is interesting. Let's drill down into this, because you say this term, a normal response to war. War is trauma. War is traumatic. War is incredibly difficult for all of those involved, whether aggressor or not, whether combatant or civilian. So as we look back through history, do we start to see long documented cases of post-traumatic stress? Were there, for instance, notions of post-traumatic stress in ancient times? Let's say, back to the ancient Greeks. So before I answer that question, I think I want to return to a an earlier point. There's really a paradoxical nature of combat and that it is, I mentioned the debate about whether we view veterans as victims or victors. And I think that they are in some ways both. Victims may not be the right word, but the point I want to make is that the nature of combat is so characterized by, in many ways, the highest of highs and also the lowest of lows. And I think that's why it's so fascinating. I know that the reason that I began studying this topic is because my dad was about to be enlisted or drafted into the army in Vietnam. And he, just to show his personality, uh, said, well, that's not tough enough for me, so I'm going to go enlist in the Marine Corps. So from as early as I could remember, I've always wanted to understand what his experience was like. And he, like many people, had this sort of paradoxical relationship with it where it was, he still won't really tell me the bad stuff, but he will definitely tell me the good stuff. And when he's tried to tell other people that haven't studied war, that it's one of the greatest experiences of his life, people look at him like he's crazy. So I think that that's an important parameter to set in the literature, that there is a very strong component in memoirs and other pieces of literature that are anti-war and just show the horrific nature of combat. But on the other hand, there are many uplifting and, and powerful stories of good times too. So it's kind of a mix of these highs, these lows, and then a lot of boredom thrown in. We do hear this, you know, you look through and you read military memoirs and camaraderie is, of course, a a fantastic thing. The experience of of brothers and sisters in arms and the old adage of the harder the battle, the sweeter the victory. And you go through the list of military quotes from generals throughout history. And it's, it's the same thing that we hear over and over again. And you hear this glory of war as you do trace back through to those ancient times that I mentioned previously. But I suppose it's, it's here that we start to wonder, if, do you have that admitting of there are darker sides to war, this juxtaposition between the glory and the turmoil and trauma? Well, I think that the bounds of the field are set in some ways by Joanna Bork, who argues that killing is easy and people enjoy it. 
And on the other hand, we have Dave Grossman, who argues that killing is very hard and that the militaries really have to work hard to inculcate the ability to do this through training and conditioning. But my students, we just wrapped up uh, my elective yesterday on the historical experience of combat. And the reason that I choose Carl Marlantes and his book on what it's like to go to war for my last day is because he really pulls together those two threads. And I think that he makes a good case for, well, my students labeled it Jekyll and Hyde yesterday, where each of us has a Jekyll and each of us has a Hyde. And when we act like we don't have the bad side in us, when societies act like they're not uh, capable of horrible things, then you can go start going down a really dangerous road. So I think it's important to find a middle ground that, you know, Dave Grossman argues that 2% of the population is or are natural killers, but everyone else just really doesn't want to do that. Uh, Joanna Burke goes more to the other hand, like, oh, yes, most people enjoy killing. And the truth is somewhere very much in between, but we have to recognize that both sides have real validity to them. You see, that's really interesting because one of the things, as our listeners know, that fascinates me is the history of weaponry and warfare. And I focus in on, on drones today, and I'm sure we'll touch on those later. But if you look through the long history of human warfare, you can see that humans have tried to distance themselves from that brutal act of killing itself to make sure that they don't have to look a person in the eye as they take their life. You look at the invention of the arrow. You go back to the crossbow you move through to the invention of guns the machine gun itself the fact that troops had to dig into the ground to hide from those distant faraway guns firing endless rounds at them you move through to air power warfare getting ever more distant between the perpetrator and those that they're trying to kill so i wonder if we look through this history now heather whether or not it is the case that humans have tried to distance themselves from the act of killing so that they can perhaps look at themselves with an air of deniability and think, you know, did I kill that person? Perhaps that, that wasn't me. And you don't have to, to deal with that moral anguish. Right. And I think that's a really important discussion about memory and things like crew-served weapons that then build in deniability. But of course, that then takes us back to the question of how hard is it to kill? And it's really hard to answer that. But one of the reasons that my class begins with Greek warfare after we read Dave Grossman is because the Greeks began by practicing more distant warfare. And there would be a few people that engaged more in hand-to-hand combat and were revered as heroes But there was a lot of shirking. There was a lot of, okay, I'm going to run up to the front of the battlefield really quickly, throw my spear, and then run back and, you know, kind of pat myself on the back and hang out with my friends for the next couple of hours. And I think that what is so interesting about Greek warfare is that at one point, the Greeks embraced the hoplite system. What's the hoplite system, Heather? Well, the hoplite system is instead of fighting with spears, you're going to hold a shield in one hand and and a weapon in another, and you're all going to be lined up next to your brethren, and then you're going to be in rows, and now you're going to fight on the battlefield within visual distance where you can see your enemy much closer. Right, I see. Many people say, well, the fact that they could do this had a huge offensive advantage because it was far more intimidating, it had a psychological and a morale effect on the opponent, and what I always zero in on is really the flip side of that, which is 
Well, once you start fighting closer like that, the psychological costs of being able to do that, of conditioning, of training, and then the after effect, I think go up and become much, much higher. And I think it's interesting if you look at Athenian warfare, for example, you know, the the Spartans get all of the attention. It's not necessarily that they were the elites of the day so much that they were the first to professionalize. So they had a head start on training. And of course, their society then became completely mobilized for war. The Athenians, you know, their culture was more sort of the Brooks Brothers of armor. We have to have the best, a lot of, of show and elite status. So it's a very interesting, you know, it's kind of what we think about the British amateur system of the 19th century. You don't really have to train. You just, you're a gentleman, so you know how to fight kind of model. And then you put these guys on the battlefield. And so to return to your question about trauma and post-traumatic stress, Herodotus tells a story of a guy that's out there on the battlefield and suddenly becomes blind, not because he's injured, but because he has a psychosomatic response to battle. And there's a big divide between those who increasingly argue that moral trauma or this kind of traumatic memory did not really emerge until the 19th century and that post-traumatic stress is highly shaped by culture and the intersections of sort of psychologists, veterans, and society as a whole, and those who tend to see that it is more enduring. I, even though I'm a historian and I am very interested in culture, I tend to fall more in the realm of psychology and more continuity in the human experience. Sometimes you'll read something like, well, people before Operation Desert Storm didn't have flashbacks. That's a modern response to war. But then you'll read about, you know, in the Hundred Years' War, there was a guy who slept by himself at night because he tended to sleepwalk and and try to fight people with his sword. So I'm not completely convinced that each sort of generation manifests its own symptoms psychologically in terms of responses to war. The shell shock of World War I, I think is a good counterexample maybe, where, you know, there are people that were diagnosed as really multiple people being unable to really even walk. So maybe that's the best counterexample. But I just see a whole lot more commonality. But for the listeners, there are two views. I just happen to be of the more continuity and the emphasis on, even if it's not necessarily post-traumatic stress, that there are huge psychological costs to going to war that affect almost everyone. It's just they don't necessarily become debilitating for most people, but it, it depends on a whole host of other things, like I think personality, how you know accepting a culture is, and helping people reintegrate, a bunch of different issues that can help or hurt veteran reintegration. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. 
at this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Beauforts were bad. But when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And it is so interesting that you go back through that history there. You mentioned shell shock, and we've all seen those iconic, disturbing pictures of soldiers just looking, it's hard to describe, isn't it? Looking lost in their own minds, their eyes absorbed by whatever scenes that they've seen on the battlefield, that 1,000-yard stare off into the distance, and that was often misdiagnosed as cowardice, and, and some were shot as they sought to run back from the battlefield in fear. And then, of course, it was during that period that you started to have some early medical treatment for this condition that was known as shell shock. But you go further back and you can look at, I don't know, cannonball wind and the idea that those who served on the great ships with hundreds of guns firing at each other in the midst of naval warfare wouldn't be truly disturbed by what they were facing. And there were, I suppose, that the weapons of the time were used to describe what it is that they felt because it was the weapons that were deemed to be causing it. And this transitions us through back into to your part of the world, back to the United States and to your specialism in history. And the first, I guess you could call it the first mechanised war, this is the Civil War. As we move through into this period, the first industrialised form of combat before the First World War, do we start to see that there are mentions of trauma during this period? Well, we do. The Civil War talks about the soldier's heart. But I do think that if we're looking at a huge transformation, it's interesting to look at how when 
You live in a society that's more violent, as would have been, you know, hundreds of years ago. And we could argue how it wants to frame violence, but where violence is just, there's less of a distinction between war and peace in terms of daily life that then becomes perhaps less traumatic. So that may be a, a big distinction. I think that's a good argument for how the experience of war may be culturally constructed. But I still would hold that psychologically, um, humans tend to react in, in many similar ways. That's interesting. So a cultural definition of war based on your cultural values, your background of that society, your history, as to whether or not war is deemed to be more of a traumatic experience or perhaps more of a heroic experience. And the more that a society wages war, the more that it becomes a more everyday and lived experience and just part of everyday life. How does that link into the Civil War, Heather? Well, I think that Western in Western thought, we really get this development about a sense of self. And then for many, war becomes this act of self-discovery. And that may be one of the, the greatest transitions between sort of the old Western way of war, maybe, and the new Western way of war. And I think it would be really interesting. And unfortunately, it's really, um, it can be challenging to find good literature on the combat experience outside of the West to really understand how much culture may be shaping people's experiences in ways that may make me more change my vote for that, that culture versus psychology balance. I see. I see what you're getting at now. So when we talk about civil wars, whether it's the French Revolution or through to the US Civil War, we are talking more about that lived experience in society and how potentially it manifests itself in a different way. So let's move on to, I suppose we could call them more traditional wars and total wars of the 20th century. Let's talk about the Second World War largely built up of conscripts' armies on all sides, but most definitely defined by the pioneering of new technologies. And I mentioned air power previously. As war does get more distant from those who launch the bombs from thousands of feet in the sky, not knowing whether or not they've hit a, a hospital or a military base, do we start to see a decrease in the documented cases of trauma? I think that's a really interesting point. I think that the problem is that, well, there are many problems, but one of the key ones is that the numbers are so, you see such different numbers. I think that now people try to sort of, when they do these numbers, they try to allow for the fact that people are going to underreport, even though the stigma is going down. And so you see just a whole wide range of numbers and you're really not sure what to think or how to make of them. So you gave this 15% global war on terror PTS rate. Uh, I pulled up some other numbers. World War II, they think it was maybe 4 to 10%, but again, completely different era in terms of the stigma. And I think it's, you know, they called it more like battle exhaustion, which I think ties in nicely to that, the 100-yard stare that we were talking about earlier. OEF, they range from 11 to 20. Interestingly, Operation Desert Storm, they say 12%. And Vietnam, they say 15%. But over time now, that's gone up to 30%. And this, I think, really plays into the issue of combat motivation and 
the reason that you're you're there. And so that I think is why people argue that rates tend to be higher, arguably. Again, the numbers are, I think are very problematic in unconventional or non-existential wars. It's hard, it's been fascinating in this class that I just wrapped up teaching yesterday with the invasion of Ukraine to think about what will be the post-traumatic rates for Ukrainians, Ukrainian volunteers, uh, what will be the post-traumatic rates for civilians, for children? I have no idea, but I think it's, it's something very interesting to think about. And if we, we think about World War II, in reading a lot of memoirs by people on U.S. bomber crews, what surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, was the fact that when you read their accounts, they mention Pearl Harbor, But just because Pearl Harbor was a galvanizing moment for the U.S. doesn't mean that it gave a lot of those bomber crews a clear sense of why they were fighting. They they still didn't really, for the most part, understand. And they especially didn't understand why they were fighting Germany. And so even though World War II was an existential war in many ways, it did not function as a combat motivator in that way for those bomber crews. And... I think that I'm particularly interested in the bombardiers because the bomber is a crew-served weapon in many ways. But in World War II, the bombardiers controlled the bomber in the um, making adjustments to use the bomb site in the last portion before they dropped the bombs. And there were many examples of you know psychosomatic responses where they reach up to you know launch the bombs and they just cannot make themselves do it. And I think that you can say that you're killing at a distance, but if you begin to think about it, you know that you don't know what you're hitting. And so I think that there probably was, it may not have been PTS, but I definitely think that this is probably a case where moral injury may have come into play and how that played out over the short term and over the long term, we, I don't think we'll ever really be able to, to answer that question But there have been some studies that have shown that PTS seems to be going up, whether that is accurate or not. I am not personally convinced of that yet. Well, time will tell, of course. And it's interesting here how your research and my research dovetail ever so slightly, because I remember being in the Library of Congress going through the archives of uh, General H.H. Arnold, the first head of the uh, U.S. Air Force, and I came across a file that was labelled crank letters, so letters from mad people sending them to, to General Arnold. And I blew the dust off this file. And it wasn't crank letters at all. It wasn't from people just sending hate towards General Arnold. It was from former service personnel during the Second World War. And each one of them, as I read through, go through this point that you've made just then. They say that they were told that during the Second World War their bombs were dropped with pinpoint precision. You remember during this period that Americans lauded their bombing strategy compared to the British and the Germans that had a a kind of carpet bombing, a morale bombing, in order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything mentality. The Americans did it better, they said. It was about getting a bomb in a a pickle barrel. It was about being pinpoint precise and proportionate. But uh, when it came down to it, of course, and the Americans moved their bombing strategy more in line with what the British and the Germans were doing due to some of the technical failures 
failures of the Norden bombsite. Well, it was only after the war that you started to getting the vast reports of civilian casualties. And so a lot of these bomber crews, these bombardiers, felt that they'd been lied to. And so they were sending these letters to the head of the Air Force to complain and say that they'd really been misguided, misleaded and betrayed. So maybe it's there that you start to see this connection between moral trauma and PTS as you bring those two together. I've got another question for you though, Heather. I wonder if it makes a difference as you speak about the Gulf War and Desert Storm and you speak about Vietnam, both of those coined terms to describe the mental trauma that came from the conflicts. There was Vietnam Syndrome, there was Gulf War Syndrome, each of which had their set and clear definitions and characteristics of of what they were. But as we look through, and I mentioned Afghanistan as well, and we talk about the Second World War, and we're jumping to and from and around history, does it matter if there is a victorious outcome to the war? You mentioned about an existential threat and fighting the good fight to save society or, or liberate a society. But does it matter if that war is victorious? Does that decrease the accounts of PTS? I think that it would depend very much on the situation. I think that there is a lot of moral trauma that came out of Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom in Afghanistan because many went in for very idealistic reasons. Of course, many just went in for pragmatic reasons. It's always a mix. But it's kind of a hindsight issue where what's happening is that there is a lot more moral injury that is coming out, a lot more psychological cost of war emerging that may not rise to the level of, you know, what I was talking about earlier, the four different types of manifestations of symptoms that you need, the four categories that have to show themselves for a month that may affect some. But there are a lot of my students that are not affected. There are some that were more affected in the short-term um, withdrawal back in in August and September, and just the heartbreaking stories of of what's gone on since then. And so, I don't have a really good answer for you. I, I think that it would be really hard to answer, and it would require a lot of a whole book. I think you're you're probably right because it, it really characterizes just how difficult it is to put a finger on this topic and to come up with clear answers, clear definitions and well clear characteristics of how this manifests itself and what causes PTS as well. So I suppose thank you so much, Heather, for taking the time to take us through this. I know that we've marched you through a long period of history and I really appreciate you taking us through how this has developed and what may contribute towards it. And I suppose it leaves me with a a final question for you, a question as we start to look towards the future of warfare and specifically American Western allied warfare. Because we say that war is getting ever more remote, ever more distant. We call it remote warfare. We have smaller 
professional militaries. It's not signed up by conscripts. It is a fully volunteer force. This was something that was learnt after Vietnam. This was something that you know, General Nor- Storming Norman Schwarzkopf made sure had been instilled in the US military by the time we came round to the first Gulf War. So as we see smaller detachments, smaller footprints in conflicts abroad of US troops, as we see the use of robotic technologies and uh, uncrewed aerial vehicles, otherwise known as drones that can be controlled from thousands of kilometres away back in the continental United States while firing deadly missiles over onto different continents. Can we see that PTS is going to be an issue for the US military into the future? Or is this something that will be, I suppose, confined to the annals of history? Well... I think that in some ways, the numbers might increase because it has become more socially accepted and not seen as an example of shirking, which is a wonderful change. I think that the kind of military that you just described, which is more professional, a little bit older, a little bit better educated and trained and get to choose, all of that in some ways self-selects to allow for people that may be more or likely are a little bit more resilient. For example, if we go to RPAs and we compare the PTS rates for sensor operators and officers, the pilots, you do see that the sensor operators tend to have a little bit higher rate, which I think is interesting. And I do think that may be due to factors like age. So you mentioned age there, Heather. And just to say, RPAs are drones. They're remotely piloted aircraft. Are sensor operators younger? I think you can be recruited into the US military as a sensor operator from as young as 17 years old. Right, but if you go with the assumption that the pilots have graduated from college, that would already put them at, say, four years. But I think the training pipeline might be longer as well. So I think that even if it's only, say, three to five years, the emotional maturation that occurs in the brain may be enough to actually make more of a difference. But the counter argument, now that I'm talking myself out of my argument, is that there's a reason that we kind of like 18-year-old infantrymen because in some ways they haven't matured. So there's, there's a weird mix where more mature people may be likely to be more empathetic, less dehumanizing when it comes to killing, and maybe that makes them better able to see it as to ritualize and to and to understand what they're doing, which may lead to more resiliency and be better in the long run. But on the other hand, it may be easier initially for 18-year-olds, but that may lead to psychological consequences later on. That's a, a very broad sweeping statement that I that I think is is useful for beginning to think about it, but not really the definitive answer. That's a a really interesting point to finish on and for us to consider. And reminds me of those, those immortal words. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Heather, thank you so much for your time. Please tell us, where can we read more about your research? So it's been such a pleasure to be on this podcast and... You know, the experience of combat is really why I switched from being a diplomatic historian to a military historian, because it brings in such a wide range of human emotion and experience. And I think it's really interesting to close with a passage written by a World War I German officer in the well-known novel Storm of Steel. 
And this book has confounded a lot of literary analysts, but I think he really highlights why, even outside of post-traumatic stress, that war can be, again, paradoxical in its highest of highs and its lowest of lows, but also leave a varying psychological imprint on people. And so he talks about how he sees my British soldier that he had killed, little more than a boy, who had been hit in the temple. So it's really interesting, he says, who had been hit in the temple. It's in passive voice. He does not make clear that he hit him. So he's distancing himself, but then he forces himself to engage more closely with what he has done. And he says, the the British soldier boy, he lay there looking quite relaxed. I forced myself to look closely at him. It wasn't a case of you or me anymore. I often thought back on him and more with the passing of the years. The state or the government, he means, which relieves us of our responsibility, cannot take away our remorse and we must exercise it. Sorrow, regret pursued me deep into my dreams. So there's this complicated tension and any time that we are engaged in the horrible choice of to kill or or not to kill, our humanity is injured in many ways. And so even if it doesn't develop into the four symptoms of post-traumatic stress, there is a human cost of war that is incredibly important to, to recognize. And I think the more that we as civilians recognize that, we can help to bridge some of the civil-military divide that may have aggravated PTS um, since the glo- global war on terror. Absolutely, to kill or be killed. And, and Heather, it's, it's not very often that authors come on and, and instead of promoting their books, they finish with a, a poignant quote that helps us further understand this important topic. And so I'm going to promote your book for you. It is How the Few Became the Proud, Crafting the Marine Corps Mystique, 1874 to 1918. I recommend our listeners go out there and buy it. It is by the Naval Institute Press. Heather, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening, and if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.